started a new job this week, and uh, some of you might know that my, my boss or my supervisor goes to this church. So um, I've let him know that if I've got any grievances with his leadership of my life, that I will lace them through the sermon. Um, just So listen closely, and it feels like something's like pretty hard-hitting, but it's not for you. It's probably for him. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm really funny. <laughs> he might not, but <laughs> well, folks, this is um, this is the second um, second sermon in our Lent series, uh, which is awesome. Lent is a good time of year. We talked a little bit last week about how you know the two hands of Lent. Lent it can be both acceptance of something new or rejection, you know, of something old. So, you know, you know, it's not actually wrong to embrace something like, like joy in Lent. You're allowed to be joyful, especially on Sundays, because Sundays are not part of the Lenten fast, right? So, you're allowed to come here really happy, and you're allowed to experience joy through Lent. Just, just letting you know. We don't have to be, we don't have to look gloomy and morny and all of that kind of stuff because we're doing something called Lent. Lent isn't, um, it's not about mortification, it's about transformation. And there are all kinds of ways that transformation happens. It happens through acceptance of some things and rejection of other things. And both of them are good. So wherever you're at in your pilgrimage through Lent, I'll just throw that out there for you. Um... Today we're looking, though, at the transfiguration, the transfiguration of Jesus. Um, and I guess because we're in Lent, we're going to be asking the question about how this text might help us a little, bit, a little bit in our journey through Lent. One of the questions we might also want to ask is how this helps us into the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know, the the journey of Lent is supposed to plunge us into the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the hope is that if we dive in deep enough through Lent, that by the time we get to um, Resurrection Sunday, your heart is exploding with joy for what Jesus has done, not just then, but now in you today. So, we're passing through death, but we're heading towards resurrection, and it's all good, and it's all needed for us. Before we touch on our passage today about the transfiguration, if you have your Bibles open to that passage, it might be kind of helpful, um, but take a quick glance at the passages before our passage today, you know, starting around 16 verse 13. You'll, you, you probably will remember some of these passages, I mean, these are, these are like, this is like the best and worst day of Peter's life, right? And some of you, um, some of you like to point fingers at Peter, but really what you should probably realize is that we're all like Peter. Peter has this like massive revelation. You know, Jesus says, you know, who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am, Peter? And Peter gives like the right answer, Right? He says, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commends him like, you know, Peter, you wouldn't know this if God hadn't like revealed it to you. 
And so it's like, pat on the back, Pete. Way to go. Like, you get a gold star today in discipleship course, right? But as it goes with Peter, and so it goes with us, uh, in the next paragraph, Jesus begins to speak about how he's going to suffer and die as part of his vocation. Well, this doesn't at all work for Peter, right? He's just had this massive revelation that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. And he's got a particular understanding of the way that a Messiah should work. And you know what? Messiahs don't die. Messiahs don't die. That's not the way it works. That's Peter's understanding. A dead Messiah is a failed Messiah. So, Messiahs don't die. So, what does Peter do? He takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. And if you look at that word rebuke, it gives, gives us this idea of him grabbing Jesus by the shoulders and giving him a good shake. You know, I, when I read this passage, I go, imagine being the guy who it's like recorded for all of time that you had a little bit of a fit and you shook God. You know, poor Peter. He's the guy, remember? He's the guy that's like, Jesus is falling around, picking up ears, you know, and Peter's hacking them off. And... But Peter's a disciple, right? And you and I are disciples. And it's not, you know, woe is Peter. It's, man, I can see Peter. I can see myself in Peter. But Peter grabs God, grabs Jesus, and shakes him by the shoulders. Rebukes him. No, Lord, it can't be this way. That is not the way of a Messiah. A dead Messiah, a suffering Messiah, is a failed Messiah. So Peter's having a hard time holding the tension between this idea of like, who is the, you know, the Messiah, the rescuer, the deliverer, and this idea of suffering and death. He's, hold, he's having a hard time with that tension, but we have a hard time with that tension. We have a hard time living with that sometimes. So surely if you're the son of the living God, you're not heading towards death. So Jesus has to take a, a few minutes here and remind him, verse, remind his disciples, verses, verse 24, that to be a disciple, if you're going to follow Jesus where Jesus is going, it requires taking up a cross. There is some suffering that is part and parcel with what it means to follow Jesus in the world. So what is the context of the transfiguration? Well, it's questions about death, resurrection, identity, and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And that's the kind of stuff that is framing this experience in Matthew's gospel of the transfiguration. So let's look at the transfiguration now. What happens? Well, in verse 1, we're told that after six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a high mountain by themselves. And for those of you who have your ears uh, tuned to Scripture, you know that when we hear about mountains, we're supposed to pay attention. It's like, this is, a, this is a theme, this is a motif that sort of weaves through the whole of Scriptures. 
And there's something more going on than just speaking about a geography or a place. Something bigger going on. Mountains are very important in Scripture. Think about the mountains. Where do we hear about mountains? Where do we hear about mountains? We hear about mountains all over the place. But there's some like... There's some pretty big ones, right? God leads His people out of Egypt. You know, He brings them into the wilderness and then Moses meets with God on a mountain. And on that mountain, God reveals Himself to Moses, the place of revelation, and He reveals His way or gives them His law, which is a gift. This is a very pivotal moment in the life of God's people is this sort of relationship, this interconnection between God and Moses, the leader of God's people, the deliverer of God's people, and a mountain. So a mountain is a place of revelation, a place of experiencing God. It's also a somewhat fearful place. You know, as God was meeting with Moses on the mountain, they were supposed to be careful that like, you know, not even animals were supposed to touch the base of the mountain or they might die. It was a, it was a, powerful sort of motif throughout the Old Testament. The mountains were places of worship. The temple was built on a mountain, the high place. Jesus was tempted. We talked about this last week. Jesus was tempted on a mountain. Jesus gives a bell ringer of a sermon on a mountain, the Sermon on the Mount. You know, like a new Moses He comes on the scene giving God's way to His people, giving the new law to God's people. So, there's another probably important uh, mountain, or maybe we could call it a hill, if we want to be a little bit more specific. There's a really important hill called Golgotha, which is also a place where God reveals Himself and what it looks like. Uh, what this God looks like and what it looks like to follow Jesus, what His way looks like. It's the hill of Golgotha, Calvary, where Jesus gives His life eventually. So mountains are important places. So we have Jesus taking, you know, sort of an intimate group of people up the mountain to the high place. And our ears should be sort of ringing, burning, feeling. You should be feeling something as we start speaking about a mountain. Some anticipation should be rising in your belly about what might be revealed. What kind of encounter we are to expect. And in verse 2 it says, you know, as they get up there on the mountain, Jesus was transfigured or transformed. And what does this transformation look like? Well, before their faces, His face begins to shine like the sun and His clothes become dazzling white. He's transformed before their very eyes. Do you remember the story about Moses? When he meets with God. You remember the story? And he comes down the mountain... And the people can't even look at him because his face is so bright he's got to wear a veil. So we've got some of these same you know, motifs going on here. The, the brightness of some sort of encounter with God is happening. There's some sort of revelation happening on the top of this mountain. 
So what is going on here is some sort of revelation, and Peter, James, and John are there to see it. Later on, in 2 Peter, Peter himself writes what he thinks is going on. Well, what does he think is going on? First, 2 Peter 1.16 says that the majesty of Jesus was revealed. The majesty, the glory the magnanimity, the, 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 the bigness, the transcendence of Jesus was revealed on the mountain. And his eyes, Peter beheld that. This is his, that's Peter's account. The majesty of Jesus, who Jesus really was, was revealed to Peter, James, and John on that mountain. So they're encountering something so magnificent, so transcendent, that Peter later on speaking about it says, oh, the majesty of Jesus. Hmm. He likens Jesus, you know, in, in 2 Peter when he's talking about this, he likens Jesus to the brightness of a lamp shining in a dark place. It's just a beautiful image. In verses 3 and 4, we're told then that Moses and Elijah appear and are seen talking with Jesus. I mean, let, I mean, back the truck up for a second though. Like, can you imagine being Peter, James, and John? Like, what in the world do you do with this? You know, nothing had been legalized in first century Palestine and... You're up on the top of a mountain and all of a sudden things are shining and bright and, you know, it's the majesty of Jesus. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, you know, Elijah and Moses. You, you can imagine, are you seeing what I'm seeing? I know I overdid it on the olives last night, but. Like, what, what is that like? What is it like? So Elijah and Moses are standing there talking with Jesus. So Peter, James, and John are just sort of like standing on the side. They're watching. Elijah and Moses are not talking with Peter, James, and John. They're focused on Jesus. Well, there are lots of things that the arrival of Elijah and Moses uh, could mean on the scene. I think, you know, if I was going to put into words what I think it means, I think you know, Moses, lots of people would say, represented the law, the giving of God's way for his people. He's the, he's the, you know, he's a big deal in a big chunk of the scriptures. Elijah represents the prophets. You know, a shorthand way of speaking, you know, about the whole Old Testament, you could say, the law and the prophets say. This is, you, you'll find this through the New Testament, the law and the prophets say. It's a way of sort of shorthand saying the whole story of the Old Testament. So what do we have here? Elijah and Moses standing before Jesus having a conversation. Peter, James, and John watching on. I think we have the, the sort of the summary of the Old Testament standing in front of the God who's about to enact the new covenant. The rescue, the new exodus of God's people. Everything the Old Testament's been pushing towards. 
The law and the prophets, Elijah and Moses, standing there in a moment of glory, signaling something new is coming on the scene. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? What does Peter do as he watches this? Well, this experience of seeing Jesus transfigured, speaking with Moses and Elijah, causes a reaction in Peter. And I probably, I might have had a similar reaction. He says, well, you know, let's pitch some tents and stay right here. This is the good stuff, man. There are all sorts of theological speculations over what this, this is about. But, you know, his natural reaction seems to be, let's pitch some tents. Let's stay here. Let's stay here on the top of the mountain. Could be that this text is talking about, you know, there was a festival, a Jewish festival called the Festival of Tabernacles, which was the celebration of God's deliverance, his rescue of his people from Egypt. Um, so there, there could be Peter's response to this is going, there's a rescue happening here. Should we pitch some tents and have a festival? Should we celebrate this? We don't exactly know. I don't exactly know. I'm going to leave that to your speculation in your small groups. I'm going to let you produce your own heresy. Um, and some of you most definitely will, right? So that'll be an ex- it'll be an exciting week, right? But Peter's response is, let's pitch some tents, let's stay a while, let's maybe bask in the glory of what's going on. In verse 5, we're told that as they're having this experience, as Peter, James, and John are watching on, Elijah and Moses talking with Jesus, it says, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice comes from the cloud This language and description is all revelation language. It's all revelation language. It's a revelation experience. This is what happens when God reveals things. When God revealed things to Moses, the cloud descended and the voice comes from the cloud. And on the top of the mountain, as Jesus is transfigured, the cloud descends, the presence of God comes down upon the mountain, and the voice thunders from the cloud to reveal something. Well, what is revealed in this moment? What is revealed by the coming of God's presence on the mountain? This overshadowing cloud. What are the words? Well, the words are, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. Now, I, I don't want to read too much in this, but you know, I, I was thinking so much about Peter as I was reflecting on this passage this week. And Peter struggling so much with the identity of who Jesus is and was and what he is supposed to be hoping for and who is this Messiah figure. And how confirming and affirming this strange and transcendent experience would have been for him. Peter's struggling in his guts. What what does all this mean? He has this mountaintop experience. 
where the voice from God comes, the presence of God descends, and Jesus is pointed out as the Son whom Peter should listen to. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. And if you were a good Jew, you knew that in Deuteronomy 18, God had promised that someday He was going to send another leader, a prophet, like Moses, who would lead a new exodus out from under slavery. Deuteronomy 18, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And this is what it says. It is him you shall listen to. It is him you shall listen to. We've got somehow this new Moses figure who is the Son of God, who's been transformed before their very eyes. And Peter, the one who's struggling with who this Jesus character is, is probably beginning to put together some of the pieces. Probably beginning to put together some of the pieces. Jesus is the prophet. He is the one. He is the priest. He is the king. Listen to him. What does it feel like to have shaken Jesus and have this revelation? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I'm not going to read any more into that. But this is what I was pondering. What does it feel like to have these sort of incompatible wrestlings going on in your gut. Well, welcome to Lent, right? Welcome to, the, to, to what it looks like to really journey as human beings who live on two hills. We live on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration and we live on, you know, at the foot of the cross in Golgotha and we've got to somehow hold these tensions because we live real lives with real human beings and Real bosses and, you know, I mean, right? <laughs> the text then says, the, de- the text then says that the disciples hear this voice thundering from the clouds as God's people had always sort of heard the voice of God. And they do the same thing that God's people have always done. They fall to the ground in terror, just overwhelmed by what they're seeing, hearing, feeling. There's a sort of theme that goes through the Scriptures that somehow it's difficult to handle the revelation of God in our mortal flesh. It's difficult to handle that. It flattens us on the ground. The text in the Old Testament that says that the glory of God came, the priests were were flattened before God. They fell face down and they couldn't continue their work. Something about this awe-inspiring presence of God sort of knocks you off your feet. Whether you want to be humble or not, it puts you there. So the three disciples that are there fall to their ground. There's this really interesting little detail in this that I, again, I'm not going to expand on too much, but I hope that you maybe this week take a moment to reflect on it. So in the midst of their terror at hearing and seeing what they're hearing, what they're hearing and seeing what they're seeing, and their eyes are turned away, 
It says that Jesus comes to them and He touches them. He touches them. I just, I love the, I don't know, the, the intimacy of this, the, this little text. It doesn't say He like hollered at them and got their attention. You know, it doesn't say He threw a rock across. Hey, guys, wake up. Everything's good. Chill. It's got this sort of like tender feel. So somehow, in the midst of this encounter with God, we have this like transcendent, awe-inspiring, and then really human, fleshy, compassionate sort of this this sort of messy merger of these two things, which I think is what it's like to encounter God too. You know, this this is the God we find in Jesus. He's the transcendent and the compassionate one who touches our flesh. He's got flesh like our flesh. He's touchable. He's feelable. Hmm. I also like how it says this. It says that when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. Somewhere deep in me as I prepared this sermon, this is part of my prayer. This is part of my prayer as I pilgrim through Lent. It's part of my prayer for you too, that in this Lenten season, when you lift up your eyes, that you'll see nothing but Jesus. You'll see nothing but Jesus. So how does the text end? How does the text end? Well, Jesus touches them. He says, rise and have no fear. They lift up their eyes and they see nothing but Jesus. And then Jesus tells them, tell no one about this vision until after the Son of Man is raised. So they get a glimpse now that they've got to hold on to until the moment when they see the resurrection and it'll all make sense. So many things in our life. That in the, in, the, in the midst of it, you know, we see Jesus, we experience the transcendent, we encounter God. But so much of it, making sense of so much of life will not make sense until all things have been resurrected. And we hold this tension in our heart. I love how, I mean, you can skip ahead if you want in your own de- in devotions, but you know, you sort of look at what the next story is that's attached. So they come down the mountain. And what happens? Immediately they encounter a boy with a demon. They get thrust back into the midst of real life. The messiness of life. They take that experience of the transfigured Jesus in them, down the mountain and into the midst of real life. If this isn't a good description of what Lent is, turning our face, fixing our eyes, on the majestic Jesus, and then entering deeply into life with all of its messiness. And that's not just your spouse. 
right? Chantel's not here this morning. I can say whatever I want. You know, it's like... But entering into the messiness of life, holding the transfigured, majestic Jesus in your soul, this is what life is about. That we're supposed to always be ready to give an account for the hope that lies within us. Somehow that, that transcendent, transfigured, majestic Jesus is what we carry as we live through the mess that is our daily lives. The suffering, the pain, the death. We stand somehow on both of those mountains at the same time. The Mount of Golgotha, where God is revealed, and the Mount of Transfiguration, where God is also revealed. But you can't have one hill without the other. And we don't live in a God with a, we don't live and serve a God who doesn't know our suffering. He is transcendent, but he's also the God who touches us whom we experience, who is with us. He's the comforter. Both of these hills hold the tensions of our lives. And both of these hills need to be held in our hearts as we walk through Lent. As we're looking at transformation, we always need to be looking also at the cross. We hold death and resurrection together. This is what it means to be a Christian person. It's not just someday in the great by and by. But it's not all here yet. We live with two mountains in our hearts. Both are necessary. And both should be considered as we journey through Lent. So as we journey, as we continue to journey through Lent, and maybe you're, maybe you're here this morning and you're like, oh man, I feel terrible. I haven't like decided what I'm going to accept or reject during Lent. I'm just like... I'm not bringing my A game. Well, let me tell you, it is not too late. You, you can join in. What, what, what do you need to accept, embrace? Maybe it's joy. What do you need to reject? Maybe it's gossip, slander, greed. How can you lean into becoming more like Jesus? What is your process of transformation? And as you do that, friends, can I encourage you? Use this season of time to fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Your life and your discipleship comes with all sorts of challenges, as does mine. And maybe like Peter, you don't want to embrace the messiness of the death of your life in some area. But lean into it. Two mountains, two hills. But as you do that, set your eyes on the majesty of Christ in prayer, Sunday worship, spiritual reading, good conversation with friends. And as you have those moments, as you orient your heart towards Jesus, carry that down the mountain with you into your real life into the mess that is life, but into the beauty that is life too. And remember the words that were spoken over Jesus. Here is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. Amen.